It's a positive film. It has heroes and villains, and uh, that it essentially uh, is a fun movie to watch. It's been a long time since people have been able to go to the movies and see a sort of straightforward, wholesome, fun adventure. Well, it's a fantasy. It's not science fiction so much as it is space fantasy. And it's about people. It's about, it's finally about people and not finally about science. The story when you actually put it into words is only so much nonsense to hang a great visual experience onto. It's the stuff that fairy tales are made of sort of boiling down religion into a very basic concept. Uh, the fact that there is some deity or some power or some force that sort of controls our destiny uh, works for good and also works for evil. Marvelous, healthy innocence. Great pace, wonderful to look at, full of guts, nothing unpleasant. I mean, people go bang, bang, and people fall over and dead. But, you know, no horrors. A sort of wonderful freshness about it, a kind of like a wonderful fresh air. It's got whatever you want it to be. It's a it's pure entertainment. It's like a roller coaster ride, and it can be interpreted as long as you enjoy it, which is the intention. Welcome back to Generation Skywalker and uh, tonight in our book month we are looking at the Aftermath trilogy. Uh, love them or hate them, we're going to delve into them. Uh, joining me from Generation Skywalker, I've got Craig. Good evening, Craig. Good evening. And we're fortunate to have two fantastic guests, both uh, members of the Superb Fanfare Tracks. We've got Brian Cameron. Good evening, Brian. Good evening. And we've got Mark Mulcaster. Good evening, Mark. Hello there. How are you doing? <laughs> We're all good, mate. Now, you uh, you did this with us last year. Uh, we did the Thrawn trilogy. That's right. Um, so this is going to be a little bit different because uh, we're coming into canon now, aren't we? So, um, yeah. Yeah. Looking forward to this. I'm going to I'm going to say from the outset, I, I read the first book when it came out for, for personal reasons. Never got around to reading two and three and have tried the audio book of listening to this again. But I've only got, got to the end of number one again. So uh, <laughs> I'm well versed in that one, but um, not the rest. So before we get too much into it, okay, let, let's just give the aftermath a bit of um, bit of background where it sits. So Brian, if I come to you, where does aftermath sit in the Star Wars timeline? So it's coming just after Return of the Jedi, and it kind of fills in the gap between Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens. And uh, so it's the first um, novel that really tied into The Force Awakens at all as part of the publishing program Journey to the Force Awakens, and uh, it kind of spreads itself quite significantly across that whole timeline. Right. So having, like I just said, having not read the books, so if I'm right in thinking, 30 years between Return of the Jedi and Force Awakens? Yes, yeah. So does this span the 30 years, or is it uh, a section of it? Sections of it, depending out of different elements of that whole timeline. Yeah, okay. Going to come over to you a minute, Mark, here, because this was uh, probably the first real 
main novel with with Disney's takeover and, and with this new canon. Chuck Wendig, and I've got to bring it up because, like I say, I've only read the first book, but I have done a lot of reading of reviews and that online, and there seems to be a real negativity towards Chuck's work and him being chosen to take on this this first chapter and quite an important chapter in Disney's owning of of Star Wars. What do you think about the choice? What do you think about the written word that Chuck brings to the to the books? It, it's a bit of a tough one because it is a bit of a um, it's chalk and cheese, really. I've, and especially the first book, I think people either got it and really kind of dug for prose and that kind of was it. It's like third person present tense. which So actually, sometimes when you read it, it kind of feels like you're almost reading a screenplay. Um, and so that so there's an immediacy about it, actually, which I kind of quite like. But it it takes a little bit of getting used to. And I think, unfortunately, books aside, where Chuck really falls down, it was basically the way he dealt with criticism on social media, really, as far as I was concerned. Um, rightly or wrongly, there were people who were criticizing his you know, choice of characters or, you know, their, you know, the sexuality kind of representation of certain characters and stuff. And. And he was basically pretty blunt um, with his responses. And I think when you do that, you kind of, you, you know, you're not going to warm the, um, the fandom to you, really. So I think after that, it, he was always kind of like on the back foot because actually I think personally the trilogy does kind of get better as it goes along. Um, you know, so it's a it's a shame you haven't read you know anything but the first book. But at the same time, you know, it's uh, I think. There's, there's probably good reasons for for people who are kind of getting stuck on that first book and not actually proceeding any further. Someone had written <laughs> on one of their reviews that he was a he was an English teacher, and he said his problem with it was a sentence which should have read the ship flew through the blue swirling nebula. Chuck decided to use this as the sentence instead: a fast ship flying quickly, blue nebula swirling. And they said that the whole book <laughs> was kind of in that kind of text chat i think someone actually related it to like uh he can only write like that but um that's not the same in all three books like that i i mean i don't know if i just got used to it as the trilogy went on or not but i didn't really it didn't kind of stick out so much in this in the second and third book i don't i don't know brian did you did you think it was you know the, the way he wrote those books was as consistent or did he kind of do you reckon maybe have gotten some kind of editorial uh you know, direction it definitely improved over the course of the trilogy. But I kind of agree with what's been said in terms of he doubled down so much on the criticism of the first novel. He addressed a lot of the criticism and fixed a lot of the problems, but because of the way he reacted on social media, it meant people kind of took a dislike to to him and thus the trilogy. So I think a lot of people missed out on the fact it does improve and it does get um, quite interesting. But I concur that the, the writing at times is just terrible in the first novel. I picked out one line that was the tie wibbles and wobbles in the air, careering drunkenly across the rooftops, it zigzags herkily, jerkily out of sight. And that's just so <laughs> difficult to read and so difficult to enjoy that enjoy that in a Star Wars novel, I think. Yeah, but I mean, I think for me anyway, it it kind of, like I said, it it almost reads like what you would put in a screenplay. You know, you, you give like these vague general kind of like directions, like, you know, yeah. somebody enters. He actually wrote the novel in 45 days. And, <laughs> and, and to me, that kind of tells. Yeah. It's, it almost feels like it's someone that's gone through and plotted out a novel. 
but not gone back to properly write it. Yeah. Uh, but you also, I mean, again, sometimes, uh, and, you know, we could possibly lay this kind of criticism, you know, at the feet of uh, the sequel trilogy as well. Sometimes you think, you you know, you, okay, you've got a creative who's employed to do something, but then there are, you know, there's layers of approval and editorial above that that should have probably picked it up and either have, you know, said something or at least flagged it to him. Because, you know, you'd think that he's probably, you know, as it's as his first book, you'd think you'd well, you'd like to hope he was a little bit acquiescent to maybe some of the uh, the direction that Lucasfilm wanted him to go in. And I think that I think that's really telling as well, and that he's obviously been given some information about the Force Awakens, and because so much of the novel is skewed towards um, just after Return of the Jedi, um, it can sort of hint a little in the first novel, but it's really unclear as to you know where they're heading or. What they're trying to hint towards um, as you get into life debt obviously force awakens is out he's probably been given more information and um, to allow him to write that the, the connections start to get a little bit more solid but it has the same problem as the sequel trilogy has in, in my view that by the time it gets to the end of the trilogy it, it's a different story from what it starts out to be in that by the end of the sequel trilogy, you're talking about the contingency and the Emperor coming back and so on. Spoilers if you've not seen the films. Um, <laughs> the, uh, um, and it kind of hints towards that at the start of Aftermath, that something big's happening and there's a big secret and there's a lot of plotting going on with the Empire and what the Emperor's going to be next. But by the end of the trilogy, the, the big reveal is that there's going to be a First Order. So it doesn't quite tie in really with what's happening in the sequel trilogy and it's not alluding to the Emperor and the Emperor existing. And there's so many connections between Aftermath and the sequels in terms of um, Sith acolytes and in, in groups of um, Sith supporters that doesn't quite tie in with the direction or the, the wording they've given him in the sequel trilogy. So there is feelings of the story group to help him, I think. Interestingly, I, I had Becca Benjamin on um, just a couple of shows ago and she said that uh, Actually, the Aftermath trilogy helped her uh, enjoy the sequel trilogy. Does that work vice versa? Does the sequels make these better books? Or if you took the sequels away, would these still stand as they are? Yeah, interesting. I mean, I think in some respects, it's like Brian's just said, you know, there's it feels like there's attempts to kind of almost tie these together loosely. But and it's probably more again, um, it's probably more of a, a criticism, maybe not necessarily of this trilogy, but, you know, maybe obviously the information he was given or not given, but also, the, you know, the, the plotting of the sequel trilogy. And if they didn't know where it's going to go, how the hell do you write a book that ties it all together? But there are points where you think, well, you could probably have tied it in. It's just a, it's just a shame, but actually possibly what Chuck Windig was kind of working to, they didn't really follow through necessarily in the same way with the sequel trilogy. So it's it's one of those kind of things where, where, of course, when you think about it, and one reason why I almost selected these books when we talked about what books to, to pick was because I thought it's quite a different comparison to the Thrawn trilogy, because obviously there, Timothy Zahn's got the trilogy in front of him and he can retrofit his story around where it needs to connect. Whereas this one, Chuck's kind of, he's on the back foot a little bit in some respects. He's, you know, he's trying to write around a trilogy that's also in production, that's also evolving and has no direction. So you can kind of understand why it kind of ends up the way it does. I, I don't think they help each other. Yeah. The, the whole of the Aftermath trilogy is teasing you towards the fact that they're starting a First Order. 
out of the remnants of the empire and you know everything that's been hidden on Jakku's to help aid that. Well, the sequel trilogy is teasing the fact that you've got the First Order, but secretly there's a whole other order under the Emperor's command and that no region. So they're both telling the same story in effect, but one's linking you into the beginning of the sequels and then the sequels is taking you in a completely different direction. And so they kind of let each other down a little bit. Both individually on their own without the other works better than together, I think. Mm. Yeah, agreed. Before we get too much into it, um, do you like this trilogy of books? I mean, is it something you return, would return to as as readers? Where do you sit them in in the new canon type of era? Are these up there? Are these worse you've read? Are they you no? Know, whereabouts do you sit them? Go on, Brian. Just so I know how much you like them before we get too much into them. I think they improve, and so by the end of the trilogy, it's a much more solid trilogy than you feel it's going to be after the first novel. But I feel they've been badly let down by a complete lack of clarity as to where the story's going. And so when you reflect back on them and you try to reread them, I think it's a frustration that comes out more than anything. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, if I was to, you know, without doing a full ranking, I would I would probably say as a trilogy, as it were, um, there, there are some characters in that that I really like. So therefore... I, I would probably put it like, you know, maybe upper mid. Um, but it's it's difficult because I think the, this um, this new canon has kind of given us stories in such kind of slightly different styles. And I think we really got with the expanded universe. They always, you know, with the expanded universe felt more of a type, whereas these they seem to be trying different things a lot. So it's, you know, some books resonate, you know, better with other people than, you know, other titles and that. So this one, yeah, I'd say maybe mid mid to up you know upper tier but not like it's not gonna be my first kind of go-to book but at the same time it's it's quite an enjoyable read so whilst i would say i've criticized it in connection to the sequel trilogy the mandalorian has helped it tremendously yeah exactly yeah precisely yeah uh, and you know obviously that that just that one uh interlude is is you know that almost by watching the mandalorian i think pays off to read in the trilogy even though it's still not quite consistent between the two mediums yeah. it's still kind of like it's just enough for you to go ah oh, you know there you know i wonder what other interlude stories we could possibly maybe see in either the mandalorian or in something else further down the line is it worth just uh, for people who haven't read it or aren't familiar just to explain that format and this idea of these interludes okay uh yeah so basically every so often in the book and fairly regularly there would be a interlude and the interludes would basically just be almost like a a snapshot around the galaxy of different events happening at that kind of time so you 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 see kind of glimpses of different planets and different characters and stuff like that and in the first the first time you read aftermath you kind of think well are these are these all going to link into something else later on and uh and some of them kind of kind of you know play into like the last book a little bit and stuff and some of the, the characters kind of tie in i mean others are just completely just standalone little kind of almost like you could say like a vignette a little sketch or something of just the galaxy and stuff so they're they're quite interesting but you know there's there's two thoughts actually you could probably sit there and you i think maybe a reader could almost skip most of those interludes and you'd get through the trilogy a lot quicker but at the same time they do add to it's almost like i guess 
Chuck Windick either thought he had to or was asked to was to basically almost like rebuild the galaxy and kind of like, you know, show people what the galaxy was like at that point in time. And I think from some respects, people might have been expecting this book to be, you know, centred on our heroes. And it and it and it wasn't. It was, you know, centred on some new characters. But the interludes are a way of bringing in some famous faces from from the first two trilogies um, and yeah. finding out what to yeah, exactly. You know, and, and you know, bits and bobs from like I guess the EU and like you know, planet names and stuff like that, which is which is just quite a nice way. Bearing in mind, they you know, in some respects, they've cleared away a lot of the the minutiae. It was a nice kind of way to kind of start pulling some of these elements back in. I think that's you know, you sort of mentioned the world building and the cast of characters. I think that's something that's often forgotten about when you look back on this trilogy now. That it really was a blank slate that they were they were having to work. With the, the dawn of a new trilogy, nobody really knew what was happening after the Return of the Jedi, filling in that gap up to the Force Awakens. Nobody knew at that point what the Force Awakens was going to be. Um, so this was your your first chance to to world build and to, and I think that was the key thing of the interludes. It gave you a little insight as to what was going on around the galaxy because you desperately wanted to know, but there was no way for a novel in one singular story to be able to give you that insight so I thought, I thought the interludes were a really strong part of the trilogy was you really excited when uh, you saw that um, you could trace where Jar Jar Binks would be <laughs> <laughs> street performer who would have thought no. <laughs> yeah I mean I, I I mean when I when I consume these books and I say consume I tend to audiobook them these days more than read uh, and at least in the way that Mark Thompson narrated that scene it was like i don't know it was, it was quite it was something quite sweet about it and it was you know i didn't feel like there was any kind of like overt jabs to it really and it kind of it did seem slightly fitting really in some respects so i, I just quite liked it i mean I'd, i much preferred doing something like that than you know just seeing his like skeletal corpse and the you know <laughs> a way, wasteland of like a planet or something on jakku or something random like that you know no, it was. It was quite um, reflective. There's a little bit of pathos. It was. It worked quite well. Mm. I was kind of expecting them to be Chancellor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let's let's talk about new characters in these books. Then, I mean, you've already mentioned the Mandalorian. Obviously, the aftermath trilogy is the first time you see Cobb Vanth in. I think that's it's the first time ever in Star Wars, isn't it? He gets his first outing in this. Yeah. And obviously, he's now made it to the screen. What other new characters are in there? Especially good characters. There's the whole Wexley family. Obviously, the son um, makes an appearance as a pilot in the in the sequel films, and we get introduced to mother and son in this trilogy, and it's a nice dynamic throughout as well. Yeah, it's about family, isn't it? Which is a uh, is quite fitting for Star Wars, I always think. And and of course, uh, Tevin, or you know, as he's later known, Snap has a, a B1 battle droid that he's kind of fixed up, and that called Mister Bones, which is a. Uh, <laughs> Which uh, I, I I just thought was fantastic because there was just this, re- I mean, real psychotic kind of edge to him. I mean, I think obviously nowadays we kind of were slightly overrun with so- psychotic droids in Star Wars, uh, with like Triple Zero and what have you. But um, I thought that there was a real kind of oddness about it that really worked. It was kind of like really kind of syncopated to, you know, um, and you know, again, he has he has kind of like a good payoff at the end. He kind of like you know, he sacrifices himself and stuff. So uh, it's a 
I, I thought that was a good character, but my favourite probably, actually, although I really did like Nora Wexley, I thought she was quite a decent kind of, I suppose you say main protagonist, but I really liked uh, Sinjir Raphaelis, who's the, the Imperial loyalty officer. So basically he's the one who goes around and kind of tortures and torments uh, defectors to kind of either rejoin the, the Imperial army or kind of like, you know, get wiped out. I thought his character and especially his character development over the trilogy was uh, was really good. Yeah, well, that's, that's one thing, actually. I mean, I printed off like 100 odd pages of reviews. <laughs> and it's, yeah, that is often brought up that uh, his story arc is, is one of the biggest wins in the mm. in the book. So, uh, yeah, what about Admiral Ray Sloan? Are we thoughts on her? Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I thought that was a really interesting choice. And obviously... She first appeared in John Jackson Miller's uh, A New Dawn, which was a, really the first new canon book, which kind of kicked off Star Wars Rebels. So I thought that was a nice touchstone. And I was really hoping that we would kind of see her in the sequel trilogy. I kind of thought the way that obviously she'd been in John Jackson Miller's book and they picked her story up and she was such a prominent character. I was kind of hoping that she was going to make it onto screen in some kind of tangible way. Yeah, I would agree. Those, those sort of the two Imperials there in terms of Sloan and Rax, and they had like a nice dynamic that played off each other, and they both had their sort of standing orders from, of what they were to do um, post-Endor. Um, I think both characters worked really well. They had a nice dynamic. It would have been nice to see them appear on film, and it kind of would have made most sense in The Last Jedi where they were introducing a lot more um, Imperials around like a almost like a council table in that film. It would have been nice to just have a little cameo in there. Because obviously she was pivotal across the trilogy in the um, formation of um, the First Order. You know, there was that expectation that oh, they're really going to connect all this stuff together now. And and not seeing that play out, I think, was a was a missed opportunity in the Rise of Skywalker with uh, Snap's demise and Wedge's appearance. It just didn't didn't ring true to any of these books. Yeah, which is just mm. Yeah, well, yeah, especially considering like his his relationship with Snap, it kind of starts in this one, and then it kind of builds up in oh god, what's that book? Um, Resistance Reborn is that? Yeah, Resistance Reborn. Yeah. Like you know, so yeah, you're right. There, you just feel like again, somebody you know, somebody in the story groups can kind of either caught wind or like it's been told that Wedge is going to be in it, and then you kind of think, well, you know, now we can have some kind of like payoff to this relationship of it they don't even spend any time on screen with each other you just kind of go oh come on guys it gets blown up first and then wedge comes on and it's like yeah good shooting wedge and it's just oh you yeah know, you, oh yeah we need to tell yeah by the way we need to tell you something once we finish it <laughs> totally i think for one one of the things that this trilogy does pretty well is it's handle what i would consider as a middle class white middle-aged straight man a really sincere LGBTQ kind of relationship between Sinjir and his like, his boyfriend, whose name kind of escapes me, compared to what we seem to see in a lot of the other new canon books, where a lot of the LGBTQ community seems to be kind of slightly more fixated in getting laid rather than fighting the galaxy or saving the empire. It's uh, there was something really kind of genuine about how Windig kind of wrote that that relationship. Yeah, I think I think things get a bit Captain Jack from Doctor Who sometimes, and yeah, I would agree with that that take on uh, Sinjir. 
another character that kind of I think gets overlooked a little bit in this trilogy that I enjoyed the writing of was uh, Masamida, and uh, mm. obviously he now stretches all three trilogies. He's a character that kind of stretches the whole of the Star Wars timeline, and um, I don't know. I still don't get how he managed to get himself to a position of power. But we'll, we'll we'll skip past that point. But he had quite a little bit of an emotional little story in the interludes going on. You know, at one point he was kind of really down, depressed, suicidal, and and uh, there's some nice little touches for a character that's been largely ignored. And I just thought, you know, there was little elements like that that were done really well. Didn't have any real payoff in the sequel trilogy. Doesn't really affect his character from the prequels, but it was just nice little touches to take a character we're familiar with and add a little something to it. Yeah, does he? Because he's like left in charge of running the Empire at Coruscant, isn't he? He's basically just almost like a a puppet kind of like um, president or something. Am I right? I'm thinking that's that's how it's done. Effectively, yeah. Does he then go on to like sue for peace with Leia? Is that in Bloodline, or am I getting confused with these interludes? Yeah, he, he sort he sort of becomes a hybrid between what was the Empire and what is the New Republic, and he kind of fills that little sort of political void between the two. So let, let's let's dig down into into the plots a bit. But like I say, I've not read these books, so Craig might have to help me out here with exactly where this takes us. I mean, you you keep mentioning interludes where we're dotting around the galaxy, we're learning what these people are doing. I mean, you've just mentioned some new characters in there. But um, in the what is the actual essence throughout the three books? What is what is your story here? To me, I would mark the trilogy as the, the very early foundations of what we now know as the First Order. I think that's a real takeaway from the trilogy. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. It's, it's kind of the, it's a transition from the Rebel Alliance kind of starting to, well, finishing mopping up really the empire because at the beginning of the book there's still kind of bits you know uh, remnants of the empire and by the end of the trilogy it, it culminates with this big battle over Jakku which is really kind of considered the last stand by the empire uh, and then at that point the survivors they kind of like run off to the unknown regions to I guess and you know basically transform themselves and rebuild into the, the first order um so it's it's kind that's kind of a framework that is around around this whole kind of trilogy but but in essence it is it's a family story in some respects because at the start of aftermath you've got um Temin and his mum who are kind of estranged a little bit from each other and then his dad i think he thinks has died or has just left him and then basically we find out that actually he's been captured and he's kind of been enslaved in the second book and they kind of reunite and all that so it's it, you know it's very much a family kind of story um with lots of twists and turns which i you know i don't know how spoilerific you want to get so well people haven't read them in the last six years and i don't know much <laughs> exactly <laughs> yes yeah, true but actually what they because they uh basically those uh prisoners that uh including i think snap's dad who's on kashik they get kind of like rescued by han and chewbacca who's really you know the saving grace of that middle book really was actually having some OT characters kind of start to really be more uh, front and centre. And they, they turn out to be kind of uh, sleeper agents who've been kind of brainwashed into like a, an assassination plot and stuff, which is quite cool. I mean, obviously, again, the, the, the book or the trilogy pivots at the end over with this Battle of Jakku and again, this kind of uh, this Emperor's contingency plan and the... Um, the observatory and all that stuff which 
in itself is is has such great potential for what we could have possibly seen if I think if even other authors had maybe picked back you know these story threads up. Yeah, because effectively you end up his contingency plan was the first order, but really there was another contingency plan behind it. There's also a bit of rip roaring adventure, ragtag group of Nazi hunters in there as well, isn't there? Yeah, it, it it's all, it's a bit almost inglorious bastards in some respects, kind of like hunting <laughs> hunting down people and stuff. But it which is great, you know, it's it's quite nice to actually see that you know the Rebel Alliance kind of go on the offensive like that. Bearing in mind that even at that point you've got Mom Mothma who's starting to talk about de-escalation and uh, you know de-arming the New Republic. Yeah, totally. If somebody gave me the job of writing uh, books in that era, I'd have got Nazi hunters as well. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean it's. <laughs> It's, it's quite fun and you know and that in itself you can have so many adventures in that model but I suppose obviously again because you know I guess he can't really tie up the main characters too much in that like I would say main characters like the main OT era characters like Han and Chewie is you've got to start bringing in these new characters and stuff so yeah it's a uh, I think the more the more I think about it the more I'm I'm, I'm fondly remembering this book um, it's just obviously when you've got the journey to the force awakens as it's kind of like banner title and everything's being focused on this now this is you know there's going to be little hints as to what's going to happen it lets it down but i suppose now we know what the sequel trilogy is we can go back and we can read it and we can kind of go oh, okay yeah actually this is you know is this by itself a good story and is it a fun adventure which you know at points it is so you can also yeah you can also retcon some of it as well because there was a plot point in Aftermath of there being some hollow footage of the Emperor still being alive post-Endor. Well, potentially it wasn't so much of fake footage after all. Yeah, so, exactly. You can kind of, yeah. But I mean, also that kind of, in some respects, kind of, even that kind of idea kind of gets picked up in Battlefront 2 with the uh, with Imperial, was it Sentinels, who kind of go and deliver the message to start burning down... Uh, different planets and stuff on operation cinder or whatever it is so so yeah so it's um you know there's there's definitely framework for for things there so where's luke in all this i mean you've got this rising of this first order you've not really mentioned him as a kind of story i know you said that they're not really in it but what it's just like i've done my part i'm gonna go and have a i i mean unless i kind of completely skipped over it i don't think he's in it at all is he right No, and I mean, and I'm probably I'm probably not surprised if Chuck basically got the, you know, the the mandate to to not include him at all, you know, which I mean, it's he's kind of like obvious in his uh, absence a little bit, but then look at the Force Awakens and look at we got with the payoff of seeing him at the end. So because um, Luke's basically not in any of these kind of journey to books in this, in this I kind of like to think that he's still on Ender partnering it up with uh, King C-3PO <laughs> uh, either that or he's kind of woken up with a bad hangover, ne- hangover next to like I don't know Princess Nisa or something and kind of wondering what the <laughs> hell he's done <laughs> <laughs> nothing wrong with that so the interludes don't mention our original cast because there's at all no we, we, we just wipe the floor with them I, I mean Lando gets a mention oh Lando does does he I think there's, a, there's an interlude with Lando and getting cloud city back correct me if i'm wrong on that yeah they, they head to cloud city which is kind of being run by sort of renegade imperials right um, han and chewbacca feature relatively significantly in terms of kashyyyk and his slaves leah's 
dots in and out on the political side of the storyline as well. She has a quite a, in terms of moving the plot forward, she has quite a significant role yeah. um, across the novel. So they are there and they're there about, um, maybe not in huge volume, but they do have like a significant impact on the storyline. I think, you know, a lot of people obviously compare this trilogy to, you know, Timothy Zahn's Empire trilogy. And so it was probably expecting we were going to see, you know, Han, Luke and Leia kind of, and Lando running around, you know, together again and all that. But, uh, you know, it, it kind of has to serve a different purpose. And I think, unfortunately, it's just down to what, you know, they, they needed to create space. And I think probably in some respects, from a marketing perspective, um, by not having them focused it kind of makes you hungry even more to actually see them in The Force Awakens and actually hope that they do kind of like get back together and get all of the Falcon and stuff like that. So um, it's it's an in, it's an interesting choice, but also I suppose one of the criticisms with the Expanded Universe is in some respects it doesn't really ever expand much beyond the, like the Skywalker Solo family. And at least in this respect, you've got like, you know, the Wexleys and uh, like Temin and Nora and all that who kind of like start to, expand out a little bit and you know it's a huge amount of characters in this trilogy you know if you include all the different characters you get in in all the different interludes it's like hundreds so it's you know that in itself is quite hard to kind of sometimes keep track of who's who yeah and the wexleys have popped up in marvel comics and you know sloan's been in some of claudia gray's young adult novels as well so um they have worked hard to get these characters over i think you're coming over quite positive about them, actually, and it does make me want to go away and, and delve into the second and third. Now, I've been listening to the audio book of mm. the first one. I think it's Mark Thompson, isn't it, that yeah. narrates that, who's obviously quite big on his, his voice, isn't that? Um, do you think that's the best way to go for people that are delving into these books? Does he make it a little bit more palatable? I mean, I like I said, I, I always I always listen to the audio books, and... Um, and what's interesting is now that we get some audiobooks done by Penguin Random House, which is n- normally the, the adult books narrated by him, and when you get some of the more junior books done by Disney, it's like chalk and cheese. Like the, the younger books from like the High Republic, it's just a, it's normally a single narrator with no music, no sound effects, and normally kind of like you know real basic kind of voice work. Whereas Mark really kind of delves in, and yeah, obviously he's he's got a limited palette to how many voices like he he does. So over the trilogy, you may hear some being reused, but he's really careful and, and clever that it's only the minor characters that may kind of like end up being doubled up a little bit. Um, and also, you know, like I said, it's it's why the first book's kind of kind of uh, written. It's kind of a little bit immediate, so therefore it it kind of lends itself to to a quick listen rather than you know a long drawn out read. Yeah, I think I think the audio book has its strengths in that the reading the novels because the way it's written can be incredibly frustrating experience. I think you were asking there about the positivity towards it. And I think it's because we're not experiencing it anymore in real time. So you don't have the negativity floating about the fandom in terms of the films. You don't have Chuck being difficult, shall we say, on social media. So there there isn't this negative um, cloud surrounding it um, when you go back to um, whether you read these or listen to these. So you can actually just enjoy them for what they are, which is a, which is a novel, and um, set in a Star Wars galaxy, and you can enjoy it for what it is instead of with all the baggage that um, came out 
alongside them when they were released. But I will say, if you've got a works close by, normally you get these uh, the paperbacks bundled up for probably about a tenner. So in terms of like, you know, picking up the actual trilogy as a paperback uh, physical copy, it's, it's pretty cheap. So it actually works out cheaper than getting the free credits on the Audible because that's what seven ninety nine a month. You know, for those who are spending money elsewhere on other plastic fantastic things. <laughs> well, we might have convinced a few people to do that tonight. That's cool. Uh, I mean, the thing is, yeah, like with everything and every uh, every Star Wars book, it's not going to be for everybody. But it, I think, there's some good story points to it, and I think possibly now that, like I said. Now that we know what the sequel trilogy is, the anticipation and expectation of it, you know, things joining up and connecting in, in ways that we had hoped, we know that it's not going to. So it's a show, it's a pity in some respects. If it kind of sometimes feels like a missed opportunity, but at the same time, you know, I think a, a level-headed Star Wars fan, which I know there's still one or two around, um, should probably appreciate it for what it is. Yeah, I think you've touched on it anyway. I mean, maybe Chuck Wendig's writing style wasn't well received but with regards to the plot i mean his hands i should think were pretty tired by disney weren't they yeah what he was uh informed yeah. about and if he's only got so much to go on i mean yeah you might need to give him a bit of slack in that respect yeah um, i think you've got to place these in terms of um, real world history as well in terms of what was going on because they're very political novels and you know, you know the, the first novel starts off with um monuments of the emperor being torn down on Coruscant and you can relate that at the time to what was happening in the real world and there's all sorts of little tie-ins with what's happening in America with Trump, what's happening in Europe with Brexit and you can pull all these things into the novel so you know there's a real world angst to a lot of things that you were reading off the page as well that maybe everyone's a little bit more relaxed on now. See, that's, that's very astute because I didn't pick up on any of that. I'm really bad when it comes to that kind of stuff. I know, Mark, you've you've raised it a couple of times already, the, the LGBTQ agenda. Do you think that was Disney saying, we want this in there? Because to me, Star Wars was never about anything sexuality, you know? It's kind of battles and, and politics and that kind of thing. To have something as a main focus in the books, do you, do you think it was required really? Or do you think they were ticking a box for the sake of ticking it? Yeah, do you know what? I mean, it's one I've asked myself a lot because you're right. And I think, like I said, whilst I mean, I, I don't have any issues with with like, you know, sexuality representation or or even like, you know, sex based kind of like scenes or stories. I mean, it, it's not really Star Wars. We've never really had it before. But I think well, what seems to be kind of like sticking out to me is that it doesn't seem to have the same kind of weight with, with kind of, shall we say, quote unquote, straight or cis or, uh, you know, uh, kind of like characters. Um, I mean, even down to like, uh, you know, the Empire Strikes Back from a certain point of view, there's like a, a tauntaun like stable boy who's more concerned about shagging another one than actually making sure he gets out alive, you know, from the Empire. It's, it, it seems like it's not necessarily trying to tick a box, but I think it's trying to appeal to a wider audience. And by doing that, we're trying to hammer it home a little bit. And I think maybe given time, it might balance itself out a little bit, hopefully, because it sometimes does feel a little bit disjointed. Um, I've just finished reading uh, the latest Justina Island book from High Republic. And again, you've got a, a female uh, lesbian character. But again, it's just like there's a lot of kind of female 
you know, lesbian kind of angst and stuff like that there, which I don't necessarily know if you would have if it was just a, you know, like a, a male female relationship. I don't know if they would bother to write it in. That's what I'm kind of kind of saying, you know, but it, they must be doing it to kind of appeal or hopefully appeal to a, a you know, a market that maybe they're not, you know, haven't captured before. I think when you've you've got a subject that you've kind of failed in the past to even acknowledge or address the first time that you introduce it into something, it can feel like it's a tick box kind of exercise and they're doing it because they feel they need to do it. And I'm sure there is an element of that plays into it. But certainly in terms of this trilogy, I, I didn't kind of feel that in this trilogy. I thought Chuck really introduced anything that along that lines that people might find controversial or glaring. I thought he introduced it in a way where it became very natural for the characters. And so it wasn't, it didn't feel to me like a central plot element. You know, it wasn't something that um, they were particularly trying hard to convey. It was just a case of, you know, these two characters are in a relationship and let's move along, you know. Yeah, I just wonder whether you're seeing it a lot more because I'm trying to think now. I think Doctor Afra as well, wasn't she? Wasn't she? Uh... She's she's bar. I think she's bisexual, or or she started off I think, or she yeah. It's definitely another female character that comes into that story, isn't there? That she yeah. Well, past. so there's Tovin that she that's her big love interest, and uh, the other one is Santa Star, so she like had a a relationship or a fling or whatever you want to say. Um, at co- at college, I think it was. Um, but you know it's. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't I don't necessarily have an issue. It doesn't it doesn't make me angry or kind of pull me out of it. And and like like we said, I think generally the relationship that Sinji has, how it develops and that it feels just kind of natural and it doesn't feel like it's forced or it's you know, we're trying to kind of make it sensational. It's just a fact that really up until that point we haven't had any, you know, openly gay characters really in Star Wars. And I mean it's me and Mark have talked about this uh, on previous episodes of making tracks and it's like you just wonder if these kind of labels are used for our benefit but actually in the star wars galaxy they don't actually exist because obviously you've got so many species that could be you know male female androgynous or you know what have you but actually it's only just to kind of put i suppose you say people into boxes so we understand and we can relate to their kind of relationships and their situations from a a reader who's kind of reading into that galaxy rather than maybe something that would actually even be discussed or even thought about in in the galaxy itself so it's a it's an interesting kind of position to kind of be in i think i think it's just reflective of again of the times we're in in this where we're kind of in this generation where there's a bit of flux where there's this attempt to normalize something that people previously would have maybe um had a negative connotations upon and everyone's trying really hard to make it um normal and part of everyday life so there's always going to be an element of are we pushing it as an agenda? And I don't think it is. I think it's people just consciously trying and recognising that it doesn't matter what your sexuality is, your religion, your faith, your politics, whatever. You know, there's going to be Star Wars fans of anything, you know. And mm. uh, so the story should reflect that. The characters should reflect that. And um, I think still as a society, we're not particularly good at doing it in a very normal and subtle way. And uh, I think it's kind of mentioned earlier in the show that um, when it comes to someone that's straight, we don't even think twice about it, but we are still thinking twice about it when it comes to sorry, anything else. And eventually yeah. that'll disappear. And it's just a case of time's going to take care of that, I think. I don't think I could say it any better. Yeah, I just think, you know, someone will pick up this novel in 20 years' time and someone today might say it's a bit jarring. In 20 years' time, someone reading it won't even notice. No, they'll probably go, why is this bloke writing in text? Talk? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, what's text? 
<laughs> now, can I hand over to Craig here? Because one thing with, uh, especially like what they're now the Legends novels, but the artwork on the front of the covers was always kind of beautiful. But uh, these have got a very a different look. Craig, I'm going to go with you because you are our resident art guy. It, it wasn't always beautiful, Stuart. Some of it was <laughs> absolutely terrible. <laughs> I think yeah I mean yeah this is this is more of a point for the for the whole of the new publishing wave with the with the with the new canon the, the post disney canon but you know I really liked the covers <laughs> um and since we're talking about the books it'd be nice to mention the covers and give a, a little shout out to um Scott Beale I believe is the the gentleman behind uh, a lot of this because he's uh, he's their in-house guy at Random House, so he's credited as as being the uh, the designer on on all three of these, alongside I think last shot. Yeah, it was last shot, wasn't it? And yeah, and the art director. So he's overseen a lot of the a lot of the work for the new uh, for the new canon. But I just think they it marks a step change in mm. just the physical publishing of these books. And we'll have the, these covers on the enhanced version so you can check them out. But just, you know, how many times have people had to put that Star Wars logo on a, on a book cover? And I think this, this does it in a fresh way. It's at a dynamic angle. It's, you know, bleeding off the sides. It was really a statement of like Star Wars is, is here and it's back and it's, a, you know, it, it's worthy of your attention. And yeah, I don't know what anyone else thinks about the, uh, the, the covers. I'm going to say that if you haven't seen them, you should check out the Brazilian versions of the novels which eliminates a lot of the white that you see in the English language versions. And uh, I think it makes the covers even more beautiful. I'm going to check that out. But yeah, I think, you know, I think they've got a, a sense of colour coding across the trilogy. And, you know, they've, they've, they, they're not stopping with that. I mean, the, the quality of them is great, but you look at sort of some of the new ones coming out, like the Thrawn books with the blue edging. And, uh, and they've got a real eye on the collector's I think with this stuff so you can get exclusive covers can't you and convention exclusive covers with less text and and they're, they're really sort of playing in that space you compare that to where the expanded universe was you know late 90s early noughties it's just you know they were just phoning it in it was, there was some dreadful work but, but yeah i think um, this is the way this is packaged there was some good stuff but there was some yeah i mean I, I do miss it i do miss a nice Bruce Drusen cover if i'm honest um talking but, about the Drusens, i'm talking about some of yeah but no you're right i mean and the thing is also then but what do you do in you know in this new trilogy you know they've they've gone with you know the only real kind of consistent iconic thing that you've got because you, there's no point putting people's faces on it because you know most people won't know what they are but they know what a death star looks like and we know a star destroying the millennium falcon so it just kind of it works and again it kind of there's a there's a kinetic energy about it because there's you know you know the death star and the star destroyer are both in flames you know so it, it kind of kind of tells you roughly where you're going but yeah i mean it's they're, they're, they're kind of yeah memorable i think definitely brian's right the uh the brazilian ones do look awesome i've got them up now yeah i'm looking i see yeah, yeah. big color blocks very difficult to get hold of or the wear it might be easier now i think a lot more people have them on ebay than they did when i got my hands on them well to be fair i i am going to go away and i am going to delve into life debt and empire's end because do it yeah i think i will go with the uh the audio things but uh yeah, I mean, he started off going, ah, oh, it's a bit split, but uh, I think you've both spoken quite positively about it overall, really. Boys, thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, it, it is great to chatter, to chatter book. I mean, you both know your stuff, which massively helpful, isn't it, in this 
<laughs> kind of situation you're well, well yeah we've at least read them so that's quite helpful yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah who is a uh, that's it isn't it i mean you've been throwing characters up i don't even know whether they're dead or alive at the end of these books so uh, i'm guessing sloan's alive because uh you said you were surprised she wasn't in the uh, sequel trilogy so there's one for me to uh to know about but yeah great to have you both on and um massive thank you for joining us always good fun yeah thank you don't forget you can go and check out the enhanced version of this over on youtube go and search generation skywalker the enhanced shows of everything that's going on in book month and everything previous is all over there and obviously this one go and check out those brazilian covers and whatnot check us out on social media twitter facebook and instagram just by again by searching generation skywalker and whilst you're on facebook go and check out we are generation skywalker facebook page join in the conversation start the conversation we want to hear your thoughts and of course if you don't remember any of this just remember www.generationskywalker.com where you'll find links to everything we do and uh, all our social media so one-stop shop right so it is for the show goodbye from mark thank you for joining us mark you are very welcome. Thank you for having me on. You're a star. Thank you, Brian. And thank, uh, you. thank you. Thank you. Hopefully, are you both both off to Farthest Rom? Well, it all depends because uh, my band Elixir are currently slated to be playing. I think it's Keep It True, which is in Athens, in Greece. But we're we haven't heard anything yet from the uh, uh, the organisers, so it might not be on. Which in that case, I'll be at Farthest Rom. Hoping to be there. All depends on if there is an airline running flights at that time or not. Well, that's quite local to you, isn't it? Yeah. Well, <laughs> about as local as it is for most people, I think. I can fly quite. I can. I can fly quite close to it. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Hopefully, yeah. See you both there then. And it is good night from Craig. Yeah. Cheerio. And it is good night from me. And we are Generation Skywalker. <laughs>